You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the So Much Pingle podcast. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And once again, I am recording this intro from my temporary subterranean recording studio on top of the wash machine. The dryer is radio left, and the slop sink is on your right. Now, the acoustics are actually pretty good down here in the basement. I have some blankets and a bunch of T-shirts on hangers suspended from the ceiling, and they do a great job of dampening down the echo. I am down here because my wife, Nell, is using my library slash writing room as an office. She's working from home, and she's pretty busy helping doctors and nurses with some technical issues. And that's pretty important work, and of course, much more important than my podcasting. And now that I've painted you a picture of my current situation, I hope you all are staying healthy and coping as well as you can as we continue to shelter in place. Welcome to Episode 2, The Python Problem. More specifically, the Burmese python problem in the Everglades and elsewhere in South Florida. And in just a few minutes, we'll be talking with Mike Rochford, who had some interesting first-hand experiences working on a project that studied Everglades pythons, and it was quite an adventure for him as well. Think of a, a workday that might include search planes, helicopters, airboats, and giant pythons. That sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? Mike now lives in California with his wife and kids and continues to work in biology. Now, much has been written about the introduction of Burmese pythons into Florida, and there have been endless conversations and speculation about this issue. I knew I wanted to talk with Mike about this topic as he was a person on the scene, so to speak. Starting in 2006 and for more than a decade, he was part of the data collection process that tried to figure out the scope of the python problem. And for those of you who used to frequent the old Field Herp Forum, you'll remember Mike as Mikey Fresh, and you may recall some of his Python posts. Incidentally, Mike was kind enough to furnish Joshua Holbrook and I with an account of his journey into biology for us to use in our book, The Field Herping Guide, and that added to my pleasure in speaking with him. I haven't actually met Mike yet, and I just missed an opportunity recently when I had to cancel a trip out west because, well, you know. Now, like many of you out there, I've been aware of the Everglades Python issue for a long time, even though I myself did not visit the Everglades until 2016. I was too busy visiting other cool places. But when I did go, I spent several days and nights in and around Everglades National Park, and fortunately, I didn't see a python. Now, that may sound kind of crazy, I guess, but first of all, I'm one of those life lister types, and I was hoping to see my first Burmese where they occur naturally which I did in Thailand in 2019. And also, I wasn't looking forward to witnessing a part of a huge ecological catastrophe, kind of like watching a horror movie through your fingers. And I guess I'm over that now, and I do look forward to visiting the Everglades again someday. Given their tremendous size and capacity for swallowing large prey items, Burmese pythons get a lot of press. But the problem is much bigger than just a large python on the loose. Pretty much everyone associated with herps in any capacity knows about the overwhelming number of exotic amphibians and reptiles that are established in Florida, and in South Florida in particular. 
Many years ago, I acquired a small book entitled The Ecological Impact of Man on the South Florida Herpetofauna, which was co-authored by Larry David Wilson and Louis Porras. And when it was published in 1983, the book listed 25 species of exotic herps that were confirmed to be established, mostly lizards and some frogs and toads. And the list included some exotic herps that many of us are familiar with, including Cuban brown anoles, curly tail lizards, green iguanas, cane toads, Cuban tree frogs. And at that time, there were no snakes on that list. Flash forward nearly 40 years, and today that list of established exotics has more than doubled. As best as I can tell, there are currently at least 60 exotic herb species established in Florida. At least. And remember, we're only talking about species that have established breeding populations. Now, there are plenty more herbs that have been found in, you know, onesies and twosies. And I'm sure there are folks listening who have run across some crazy herps in South Florida. Of course, you're welcome to share your encounters with the show. There are snakes on the exotic list now. Of course, Burmese pythons. But there are also African rock pythons and boa constrictors. And there are many more lizards, including true chameleons of various species, tegus, Nile monitors. In fact, there are now more than twice as many exotic lizards in Florida as there are native species. Where did all these herps come from? And how did they get loose? That's a source of endless speculation and argument, but I think it's safe to say that the two groups responsible for the bulk of the problem are animal importers and pet owners. Importers from across the Florida for years have had animals escape from their facilities. And in a few cases, apparently, some herps were deliberately turned loose. And of course, there's a small subset of pet owners who are notorious for dumping animals of all kinds, and not just in Florida. But location is everything, right? A, a green iguana turned loose in Wisconsin does not pose much of a problem once winter comes. But Florida, Florida is just ripe for colonization. And I could go on and on about exotic herps established all across North America and other places, but that deserves its own episode. And we could do an entire show on the issue of feral cats. Uh, but instead, let's get to our conversation with Mike Rochford. One more note, I recorded my interview with Mike back in January of 2020, back before the COVID-19 epidemic took away all of our attention. And the session was recorded over Skype, and I want to apologize for all the little squawks and peeps and weebles in the recording. I've upgraded some gear since then, and hopefully the sound quality will continue to improve. So I'm talking to Mike Rochford today. Hi, Mike. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Mike's talking to us all the way from California. I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, man, I'm doing very well also. Good, good. Uh, it's great to talk to you. Um, you're one of the first persons I uh, reached out to when I was uh, seriously considering putting this show together. And I'm just pleased as punch to, to talk to you about uh, some of your experiences. And uh, first of all, before we get into the meat of what we're going to talk about, which is pythons and Everglades and things like that, uh, how do you how are you liking California? Oh man, I love it. It's uh, you know, it's all there's a bunch of new stuff like you know mountains are kind of different from Florida, so I'm really enjoying the mountains and all the new herbs and uh, just trying to learn new systems and how everything works out here. So it's a great challenge. Cool. Cool. And your kids are liking it? Oh, yeah. They're having a blast. It's uh, They're going to be uh, hiking better than I do pretty soon. <laughs> and your wife, Sarah, she's enjoying it out there too, right? 
Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, all the views of the ocean from the mountains and everything, it's, uh, you know, she loves to go on the hikes and check out all the scenery and she doesn't mind if a herp gets involved every now and then. <laughs> well, that's good because yeah. every once in a while they might. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> As long as the kids don't get bit by anything, I think that's where she draws the line. Uh, yeah, we all we all worry about that with the little ones because they tend to right. run around. Yeah, yeah. So um, out in Florida or in California, but before that, you were in. Um, well, backtrack a little bit, but you you grew up in Kansas, right? You went to school in Kansas, correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I went uh, from fifth grade through college in Kansas. And uh, so I did a lot of herping there. Shout out to Chad Whitney, who I grew up herping with um, for a long time. And uh, yeah, it's a great place to grow up. I mean, it's uh, it's hard not to get into herps growing up out there because if you go outside in the spring and go anywhere, you're going to see something. So yeah, it's one of my favorite places to go. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's uh, I went back a few years ago and it was the first time I'd been in a while and I couldn't believe how easy it was. I had kind of forgotten, and uh, <laughs> man, it was great. <laughs> yeah, easy certain times of the year, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. Middle of summer doesn't work out too well. And then you end up in Florida, and uh, is it, was that part of your education? Was it a, a moving to Florida for that, or tell us a, tell us about that? Yeah, it was just kind of a, a right place at a right time kind of a thing. Um, I had done a little bit of work in Missouri. At, done some radio telemetry of Massasaugas there and uh and that gig kind of ended it was like a year year-long position and so I had to start looking for something else and I saw a position advertised for like a an alligator technician and so I applied and I you know I thought it was kind of a long shot but it sounded exciting and uh couldn't believe I got it and ended up there that was 2006 that I started April 2006 and mostly began working with alligators that year eventually pretty soon transitioned transitioned into some python work but uh yeah it was just you know i did i didn't know the pythons were even going to be part of the job at the time i see and was the alligator thing sort of a was that a, a new thing for you or had you dealt with alligators before um i had dealt with alligators i had uh caught some in some not very formal ways, I guess. Uh, just basically done what I'd seen the croc hunter do, which, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know that was that was on some herp surveys down in the Panhandle, and uh, with Joe Collins, who kind of helped me begin my career. And yeah, so I had jumped on a couple and done it the wrong way, and luckily didn't get hurt. But yeah, it was my first real formal training with alligators, and. Uh, yeah, it all really began then. And then, uh, so you you did that for a while. You were doing survey work with them, you, or you were doing uh, radio tracking, or were you doing stomach content surveys, or what were you? What were your? Yeah, a little bit of everything. Um, it started off. We were doing uh, surveys and captures. We were uh, assessing the distribution, uh, or not the distribution. Sorry, the. Uh, the abundance and um, body condition of uh, alligators in the Everglades. And that was as an indicator of Everglades um, ecosystem restoration. Uh, so, you know, hypothetically, if 
if the restoration efforts are going well, then the alligators should be getting big and have good body size because they depend on everything else uh, to be healthy. Sure, sure. And so maybe that work was prepping you for some python work, right? Large, uh, <laughs> large animal with um, <laughs> definitely difficult to ca capture and hold. So uh. yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, they're similar in many ways. They're they both have these generalist diets and large size and a little bit of a, a, a dangerous aspect to them. So um, did you? Uh, was this sort of a segue in your alligator job or was it somebody said, Hey, you know what? I think I've got something else for you to do. Or how did that work out? I don't know. I think, uh, I'd also begun a lot of road cruising surveys in the, in the national park as part of the job. I think I started just on kind of my own, uh, volition and then, uh, and then, you know, my boss, Frank Mazzotti, noticed that I was doing this all the time. And he said, well, why don't we turn this into some science? He let me start doing it officially and road cruising a lot. And so I'd catch pythons, uh, you know, here and there while I was doing that. They weren't quite as common back then, but still not rare. And then, yeah, the, the work just started coming. Uh, we started looking at the gut contents of the pythons. And so that became a major thing. And we started doing radio telemetry. You know, this was all brand new back then. So, you know, I, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, and it worked out really well. So nobody had really looked at the ecology of these snakes in the Everglades before. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I think maybe they started a few months before I got there, and then I was able to kind of slide in. But, yeah, it was all brand new then. Is this a, a state-funded effort or federal, or how did that work? Uh, both we had all kinds of funding sources um and you know i'll probably leave people out but we had funding from the park service or or usgs from the feds and the state i think early on we had more federal funding and then we kind of transitioned to more state funding toward the end when you first started i mean i i guess i'm trying to figure out i mean for you when you started did you have an inkling of how bad a problem this was with these snakes was that sort of a self dis a voyage of discovery for you yeah yeah there were a lot of times where i had my mind blown um you know not a lot of people had posted much about them back then i remember uh first time i heard about the pythons i was at uh joe and suzanne collins house and they told me walt mashaka started seeing Burmese pythons in the everglades and i just in my mind i, I tried to picture road cruising and then driving up on like a little hatchling python and just tried to imagine what that would be like and you know a year or two later i was actually doing it which uh it's a very surreal experience the first time that, that you see it happen uh-huh yeah and uh so you're radio tracking them and uh, some of them you're letting go with radio transmitters in them and other ones you're dispatching and checking their stomach contents and and so on and so forth yeah, yeah. The vast majority uh, were euthanized, and we looked at their stomach contents and examined, uh, you know, what's going on with their reproductive systems at the time. A handful, you know, if they were the right size from a place we were interested in, then we would uh, implant them and release them and follow them around for a while. And so what were you finding in the stomachs of these pythons? 
all kinds of things. The uh, the very first day that I did it uh, at the Florida Museum of Natural History in Gainesville, we had this big, it was like a one-gallon Ziploc bag. It was just full of fur. And I was learning how to identify the uh, prey remains from just, you know, individual hairs. We were going through this bag and pulled out this uh, black thing, you know, about an inch, maybe two inches long. And I looked at it and I was like, man, what is this thing? And uh, it was a deer hoof. Oh. Yeah. So like day one, the first one I look at was a deer hoof. And that had never been documented before. So how big was that snake? I couldn't tell you, but I would would guess it was probably 15 feet. Um, Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, they... They can uh, they can eat deer at a smaller size than that. I forget what the minimum size is, but yeah, it's it's crazy. And and that turns out not to be an uncommon thing when they reach uh, a large size. They eat a lot of deer and alligators, which is pretty impressive. So I um, I remember seeing a picture. I think it was yours or somebody else. Maybe somebody else took it. It's an aerial picture of. A typical Everglades sea of grass, and in the middle of the picture is a little squiggly thing, which is a pretty good-sized python. This is before the days of drones, so I'm assuming it's like a helicopter shot. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was always those, you know, those things just kind of stick in your mind. It's like, oh my gosh, right? Uh, big enough <laughs> to spot from the air. Yeah. What a what an unreal thing. And you know that I never even considered that, and then. Uh... You know, you start radio tracking them because we had to follow them with planes and helicopters because they would just move out into such remote areas. And uh, sometimes you look out the window and you can just see them laying down there. Yeah, it's incredible. It's just now it seems like commonplace, you know, oh, pythons in the Everglades. But back at the time, it was just just an unreal experience to look out of a plane and see a giant python sitting there. It's just, it's nuts. And I remember, I remember, I mean, at the time, it's like, you just had this, it wasn't notoriety, you had this uh, this celebrity, Harper celebrity status. I mean, how many guys get to go radio tracking in a helicopter every day or an airplane every day? Um, so it seems like you, uh, for a while, you were kind of a visible guy uh, yeah. for the work you were doing. Yeah, and I was young at the time, too, which kind of, uh, you know, I probably didn't use that to my advantage as well as I could have. <laughs> <laughs> you know, probably been a little more professional at times yeah you know it was a big thing and it's just weird because that that job you know when i grew up as a kid wanting to be a a herpetologist that that job didn't even exist so yeah um, yeah it's just crazy uh and you know there there are certainly people who probably would have been more qualified for it or could have done better things but you know i just kind of lucked into it yeah and there was uh somehow there the the media becomes attached to what you're doing and then you find yourself in a position where you have to speak to the media and you find uh your 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 name and your face gets kind of thrown around the country and that's kind of a different thing too isn't it yeah it is that was that was all very surreal and i think uh, there's a few things that are surprising about that i think the first thing is uh you know you get a picture for how the media operate and it's you kind of learn to stop trusting what you see on tv after that and, you know, you try to present everything as accurately as you can and hope that it ends up turning out that way when it hits the, the TV or the articles. And I think, for the most part, things went pretty well. It's interesting. 
you and then the other thing you can't leave them too much room to blow things up yeah because they'll exactly. blow things up won't they <laughs> yeah they will and uh you know they actively kind of pursue that angle and try to get you to say things that are going to be inflammatory or not even necessarily inflammatory but i think they just like to scare people and that kind of that gets viewers or clicks or whatever they're trying to get yeah um, so just have to be careful with that but yeah and uh the other thing I was kind of surprised by was, you know, the reaction of people. Um, you know, I, I hadn't really changed anything. I hadn't actually done anything that great. But, you know, a lot of people who I respected a lot seemed to respect me a lot more after that. And it's just kind of a weird thing. I've kind of learned to dismiss everything about TV and the media. Well, it, it sounds like perhaps you handled yourself well and, and um, people thought better of you for it, you know. Yeah, maybe so. And, you know, I can't complain. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a strange, uh, I don't know. I just kind of didn't expect that kind of a thing. So, but yeah. Nevertheless, there you were. You're having a good time. You're flying in planes and helicopters. And, <clears throat> I mean, that's, it's definitely yeah. uh, not your typical biology job. No, not at all. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Like, you know, you never knew what the next big thing was going to be or, you know what the next big adventure might bring and you know even if you go out to look for pythons and you see a sawfish instead that's a pretty good day oh wow so, yeah i mean there's you know anytime you go outside the unexpected can happen and you know you don't have to be flying around or looking for pythons i think uh, sure that's the great part of enjoying the outdoors i think yeah and i i have to confess i've only been to the everglades one time it was in July. <laughs> yeah, how'd it I, go? I did not find a python. I, I'm, I'm very oh, yeah. happy that I, I found. I saw my first wild python in Thailand. Oh, uh, that's Burmese better. python in Thailand. So that makes me happy. But uh, yeah, yeah, one trip to Everglades in July, and the mosquitoes just—they left a mark on me that will never fade. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty yeah. rough. Yeah, that that part of it is definitely hard, and you know, kudos to the people who can tolerate it better than I do. Yeah, it's yeah. It's did, tough. You, did you ever wonder how the how the native folks, you know, back in the day, that you know, the Seminoles and the other tribes that lived in that area, how did they manage that? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, my old boss Frank could probably tell us all about it. He he knew a lot of the old history of the clades, but uh, I I forgot what they did, but. They must have worked some kind of miracles to stay sane out there. I guess, I guess it's beautiful. It's beautiful um, park. I just enjoyed the heck out of. It. I can't wait to get back sometime. Maybe not in July. Yeah, winter's <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The other part of this is conversation it kind of predates you, I think, and and that is the when people first started noticing pythons in the Everglades. Now you you had mentioned talking to Joe Collins and that uh, Walt Mashaka had, had said something about finding pythons in there. Do you have a time frame for that? or? Well, if I remember correctly, I think the very first sighting was in 1979 and then maybe a few through the 80s and then more in the 90s and it really took off in the 2000s. Because I, yeah. re I remember hearing just whisper rumors about pythons in, in the mid-80s maybe. You know, and, but it, nothing backed up by any, you know, facts or 
Uh, it was just one of those herp rumors that gets around, you know. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, so they've yeah. had a, a while to to sort of take over the the habitat down there without people really paying attention. Yeah, they really have, and uh, you know it's amazing though. They'll travel to every corner of the Everglades, you know, places that are miles and miles from any road. And I remember one of the big mind-blowing days was the first day I heard of one on Key Largo. And it's just like, wow, they, they have no trouble swimming from the mainland to small islands offshore. Or people are finding them, like, on these little random buoys or uh, or weather stations or something offshore. Oh, really? Holy cow. Yeah. And so... So it's one of those things where with an invasive species of any kind, you've got the best shot at knocking them out as soon as you find out they're there. And hopefully you find out they're there as soon as they get there. You know, the later the later in time it gets after they've been introduced, it just gets exponentially harder. There's a thing we always used to show. There's like this, uh, oh, what do they call it? I can't believe I'm forgetting it. But it was like this curve, invas- invasion curve, I think, where starts easy and then it just gets nearly impossible as time gets on and yeah i think i think even you know despite everyone's best efforts we still probably got to the game too late you know i I think i think to tackle that problem we would have had to have hit it when there were less than 100 snakes or something like that look like uh you look at the african pythons that are there you know i don't think there have even been 50 african pythons recorded but we're having trouble knocking those out from a very small area and they, they keep persisting. You know, one pops up every year, it seems like. So those are in the Everglades as well, in within the park or outside the park? Uh, they're just outside the northeast corner of the park. Huh. Well, be darned. I mean, I'd known, yeah. I knew they, they were being fi- found. I didn't know that uh, they were being found in number. That's disturbing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very low numbers right now. Uh, a lot of people have put in a lot of work to try and get rid of them, and they're really close. It's like painfully close, but you just can't get the last one kind of a thing. You know, I think one year they removed a pretty good number, and then it's it's been suppressed pretty well since then. But they're still there as of probably about a year ago. I think the last one turned up. Hmm. That's good to hear. Um, I mean, I, you know. I'm always on the side of snakes, but I, it's hard to find anybody who thinks that's a good thing, having those yeah. things loose. Yeah, I always consider it a bit of a guilty pleasure. It's, uh, you know, they're cool snakes, and it's not their fault that they're there, but, uh, you know, yeah. what can you do? Exactly. Getting back to the Burmese, that I'm sure some, some DNA samples were collected. Do they have any – is there any way for them to figure out if, you know, we've got – one or two or three or four different, you know, genetic lines of snakes that contributed to this? Because I, I think the idea that it, it's all coming from, all of this came from a couple captive zoo animals is kind of, that seems kind of ludicrous. Yeah. I think there has been some work in that regard. Hopefully I'm not totally misrepresenting what they found. But uh, I remember it seemed like there was kind of a, a population that sprouted up in like the southeastern Everglades and then another population that was probably introduced separately over toward Naples. I think they kind of came together. Um, and I could be wrong about that. So I say that very tentatively, but I, sure. I think that's uh, kind of the impression that people were getting. 
And, you know, as far as numbers of snakes that were like the founding stock, I'm not sure about that. I haven't taken a very strong position on, you know, whether it was, you know, one person or the hurricane or tons of responsible, irresponsible pet owners. Um, I don't know that, you know, I don't really know. So I don't try to proclaim that I do know. Well, I, you know, I, I live in a college town, um, here in central Illinois and I've lived here for 30 years and I have rescued, you wouldn't believe how many dump jobs I've rescued in terms of reptiles. Oh yeah. Amphibians. And so, you know, Russian tortoises and wood turtles and corn snakes and iguanas and things like that. Fortunately, I think, uh, all those things don't make it through our winter up here. So my supposition has always been, well, you know, holy cow, if they're dumping stuff like that in my town, I'm sure it happens in a lot more places. I'm sure it's happened in Florida. I just, I just can't imagine it not being a contributing factor, you know? Yeah. I mean, it seems pretty likely, uh, cause you just look at all the other species that have been introduced to and say someone loses a Burmese Python. Now, you know, it just kind of blend in with all the others and we'd never really know if it was a new one or right. Yeah. But you look, you know, people are moving, moving chameleons around on purpose and, you know, there's Nile crocodiles and more or less crocodiles and all these crazy things being introduced. So, yeah, to think that it was like one accident in the history of herpetoculture is probably unlikely. So I know that there are, I think it may be the state and perhaps there's federal dollars included. Uh, they, they've got folks out there that are hunting pythons and, you know, trying getting paid for every python they bag and the animals are dispatched and I think they do secondary income off the hides and things like that. But, uh, do they make a dent in the populations? Do you think? Uh, I mean, overall, I don't think so. You know, I support those efforts and I think the people doing it are doing a good job and, you know, they might have some local impacts. I've always thought that everyone you can remove is a good thing, but I think overall, you're just never going to get them out of the heart of the Everglades. Sure. Uh, Unless, you know, some kind of technology comes along. So, you know, it's all about now uh, trying to keep them from expanding. So uh, when those efforts occur on the periphery of the range, I think that's really important. And also, you know, you can protect some sensitive resources. Like say there's a, a bird rickery or something that you want to protect with uh-huh. wood storage and stuff. Then, you know, if people are going to hammer the areas around there, you know, you, you can do some good in that regard. Sure. And, and, you know, they're, I know they're hitting, like, the same places pretty frequently, a lot of the levees and stuff. I'm sure they could see some uh, some declines in those areas for a while. You know, it might even be enough for the mammals to start coming back a little bit. And, you know, I've heard some chit-chat about that kind of thing happening. I, I can't say personally if that's true. They might as well do it. But I think in terms of eradication, we're too, past, we're too far past that possibility now i see but doing something is better than doing nothing that's for sure yeah yeah absolutely yeah i think i remember perhaps it was you or somebody else made some comments about this about what the the estimated population of these things uh might be these pythons might be yeah and that's uh you know that's something that people are always trying to put a number on and it's really tough I would say, you know, it started out as a lot, you know, a lot of what I'm saying is kind of shaped by what Frank has 
taught me over the years. Um, and he always says a lot cause that's, that's just a safe thing to say. Um, <laughs> and you know, the, that cold spell in 2010, we had that really bad cold front come through and that, that killed a significant portion of them. You just get the feeling like over the years, they kind of bounced back to where they were before the cold snap. And so I think we went from like a lot to a whole lot back to a lot. And now we're at a whole lot again, and maybe even higher than ever. I mean, I'm not there anymore, so I don't know what it's like, but you know, I don't know that we've seen the end of their expansion or not. So I know, uh, there's been a few pulled out of the cane fields area and not a lot, but a few. And I, I think if they hit Lake Okeechobee, they'll just radiate from there pretty quickly because they have got all the aquatic habitat to disperse through. Sure. Um, just looking at a map of Florida, I, I had the same idea earlier this week. It's like, Hmm. Yeah. That, that makes sense. You know, they'll... yeah. Yeah. I mean, they thrive all around the edge of the lake and they'd have, they can move pretty quickly when they want to, especially when they're swimming. Yeah, I mean, if they ever get to the lake in any even small numbers and reproduce, then it's just a matter of time until they're all over that area. Out of all this, all your time working with these animals and all the uh, time you spent in the field, you know, finding them, looking for them, and studying them, is there one thing that just surprised the heck out of you about <laughs> the Burmese pythons or the Burmese pythons in Florida? Uh, they're tough, you know, they can get hit by cars. I remember one time we were tracking one and, uh, we found it in the marsh and it had been shot with a shotgun and had this huge, just giant wound on the side of it. And you could tell it was healing up and the snake was doing just fine. You know, they're tough. I'm surprised how well they dealt with the cold when it did come. One of the things about that is in in most of the areas of the Everglades where we were finding them at the time, the water table is very high. So they couldn't really get underground in those areas and they didn't have a good way to stay warm. But one of the things we did find was on the levees where they could get underground without hitting the water, they survived better there. So uh, wow. I think there are implications for when they get to other areas with more upland habitat that maybe they could survive the cold a little better in places like that. So, you know, if they're in a place with like gopher tortoise burrows or armadillo holes or whatever. I um, see. Somewhere where they can get out of the cold snap. Yep. Yep. But yeah, just their toughness. I, I mean, you know, I'm kind of a skeptic and all the times when, you know, they dispersed to Key Largo and ate an alligator, ate a deer, um, survived the cold, and live in these really tough remote places and the way they hide is incredible like i've got pictures standing literally on top of 10 foot snakes that you can't even see it's something that if you've never been to the glades i don't think you can ever understand the scale of it and i think i wish everybody could go out and radio track them and see where they really live out there because uh it's it's just impressive how many hiding places they have and how much territory they have that are never going to be touched by humans. Yeah, I I think had Burmese pythons escaped somewhere else, the outcome might have been completely different. It's the fact that they escaped into a, a place that's really difficult for us to get into. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very big and it's very difficult. That's points in their favor, you know. 
Oh yeah, for sure. You know, there's very few roads, as you know, and you can take motorboats to some of the places and you can take airboats to some of the places and other places, none of that'll work. And you got to take a helicopter. And yeah, I mean, the thought that people could just go out there and collect them out is just not jiving with reality. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sure there's people that have come down there and been sorely disappointed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's that's the thing too. You would you would think like, oh, I'm looking for a 15 foot snake. This should be easy, and you get there and they're out there and you're walking right past them, but they're not easy to spot. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you wonder what else might be out there that is cooking and waiting to erupt in some, you know? Yeah, all the disaster. Time. Yeah, all the time. You know, I think it's really just a matter of time. You know, tegus were kind of the next big thing after the pythons. Nile monitors are in a few different places now. They used to be in just southwest Florida, but now they're also in, uh, let's see, Broward County, Palm Beach County, Miami Dade County. So all over the southeast. My goodness. Yeah. And uh, uh, the tegus, I think you're a co author on a paper about tegus in Florida. Is that correct? Got the, yeah, it were like Argenti the Argentinian tegu. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of. Uh, oh yeah, we just had a recent one. One one of the first ones I think I was on. We uh, we had cameras on an alligator nest, and the tegus came in and uh, they ate every single alligator egg out of the nest. And we got some cool but unfortunate videos of them, you know, walking away from the nest with these giant eggs in their mouths. Huh. And, yeah. So we published that. Uh, it was tegus as predators of a uh, alligator nests and then we had another one recently that was kind of the result of uh, a whole bunch of necropsy work that we had done on the tegus and that just came out i think within the last year or so and maybe some others but yeah there's a lot of work still going on with tegus i mean i think when i left they were catching thousands or at least over a thousand a year between all the different agencies working on them wow yeah that's incredible yeah and yeah. uh, again, those things are in South Florida, but they haven't really spread far north yet. Well, that's the thing. They actually, the first population was up kind of in the Tampa area, roughly. And uh, it wasn't until more recently that they were introduced into Miami Dade County. And that's a really big population. They're doing really well there. And there's, you know, there's tons and tons of tegus there. And then we've also got these other things where it sounds like they might be established in Georgia now. And oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. There's some concern that they might be established in St. Lucie County. There was a guy, uh, I forget the exact details, but someone in Panama City that had a bunch get out there. And I, I think that's taken care of now. Yeah, they're Ooh. popping up all over. And they're probably a little more cold tolerant than the pythons were or are. Are they... Uh adapt to cities too at yeah. least suburban living yeah there's uh what is it like a kfc or a taco bell or something right in florida city and they they like live under the drive-thru menu oh my right gosh there. yeah yeah they'll forage around dumpsters and stuff and there's there's a couple like uh trailer home communities where they're really common i'm sure they eat like dog food and cat food that people leave out and oh boy yeah uh, yeah so they're going to be a big deal for a long time to come, I think. And we haven't seen the end of their spread by any means. My goodness. And uh, these aren't your salad-eating iguanas. 
Uh, no. These are no. serious chompers on anything small that'll move. Yeah, and you know, it's really unfortunate because uh, they eat a lot of herbs. And, you yeah. know, they're the animals that we all care about, but, you know, they'll eat snakes and small lizards. And uh, actually, the Nile monitors have no problem just eating tons and tons of cane toads, which is surprising. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah, which I guess maybe that's a good thing. But uh, I don't know who to root for in that one. Yeah, I don't know either. But a lot of native herbs get eaten by by both the tegus and the monitors. A lot of snakes and glass lizards and things like uh, that. Uh, it, it's just such a zoo down there. Um, I really haven't partaken. I mean, there's people that just can go from one exotic animal to another down there. I really haven't haven't had much experience with that other than, you know, your your typical geckos and anole, Cuban anoles and things. But, you know, uh, I know there, I know some of my friends down there are like, yeah, we can go from this spot and get agamas and we can go over to this spot and get, you know, day geckos. And, and it just seems like it's a giant outdoor zoo anymore. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I was there for a decade and I still haven't seen them all. And, you know, there's new ones popping up all the time. Like, uh, you know, there were like, a few panther chameleons when I left, and now it's like all the rage is people going out and finding panther chameleons. Uh, and so, yeah, you wonder what's next. I've, I've heard rumors of Jackson's chameleons, and you know, I mean, really, it's anybody's guess. It could be anything. I, I get the feeling too. I mean, most of us are really not happy with this. It's it's not good. We we kind of get it. Yeah. Um, but I I can't help thinking there's probably a lot of folks who sort of rub their hands with glee at all this oh yeah um, and maybe there's still folks out there who perpetuate the problem um, yeah yeah i mean i certainly know some folks who have confessed to it that you know i won't won't sit here and name names but uh sure and there's people who, who obviously do it you can tell from what they post and uh you know especially with some of the, the interesting lizards and things that are on a smaller scale, I think, I think people, not a, not as many people have problems with that, and and more people tend to do it, and hopefully people won't, but we know that they do. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it um, is what it is. It is, and and I I know eventually at some point the problem will solve itself when ocean levels rise and Florida takes a bath for a while. Yeah, it really won't be long down there. Uh, <laughs> I don't know when it's coming, but I'm sure it's coming again at some point, right? And yeah. It's the great yeah. equalizer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I remember uh, we were marching in the streets one day, and it was a king tide, and the, the water was up in the streets, and they're having problems already, especially in the Keys and, the, you know, obviously the coast. Yeah, yeah. And so who knows where that's going to end up. Yeah. Uh, so I, th- this has been really interesting for me because I, you know, I, I've sort of viewed all of this going on from you know the Midwest and really wasn't involved. Uh, it kind of disturbs me to find out there's there's more than just pythons down there, such as uh, you know the different crocodiles and tegus and monitors and things like that. So it sounds like the state and perhaps the federal government has to throw a lot of money at this to, to try to keep things in check. Yeah, they definitely throw some money at it. And, uh, you know, if, if they want to tackle it seriously, they probably need to throw more money at it. I mean, and, you know, there's a lot of people working really hard to prioritize that the money that is spent on it is spent effectively. And right. 
of course, there's all kinds of arguments about what's the best way to do it. But the, you know, I worked with a lot of people who have been called a lot of names over the years, and and I, I know they're good people that are all trying to do the best they can sure. with what they have. And uh, yeah, well, it, it it's, it's it's a topic that that breeds passion, right? <laughs> yeah, it's very polarizing. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, so. Um, before I let you go, uh, what, so what do you tell me? What you're up to out in California now? Um, I'm just doing environmental consulting now, and so you know it's not anything glamorous compared to you know what I used to do. But pretty much living for the weekends and yeah, trying to enjoy herping. And you know we didn't want to raise the kids in Florida. We wanted to raise them somewhere that seemed a little safer and friendlier and provides them more opportunities. And we think here is a pretty good place. So. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I see some uh, some of your pictures with you and your kids on the weekends, taking them out to the beach and things, tide pools and things like that, and it looks pretty cool. Oh yeah, it's awesome, and uh, you know, I think back to the posts that I enjoyed when I was on the fence of whether I wanted kids. You know, there were a lot of good posts from you know Jeff Lamb and Matt Jepson that were oh yeah probably pushed me over the edge a little bit onto the in favor of having kids, and and you know now I'm trying to turn my kids into as good a herpers as their kids but uh <laughs> yeah we'll see yeah. how that goes <laughs> all right well i have to tell you it's been great talking to you uh yeah, i well, really appreciate you coming on the show and uh best of luck to you in the future and uh hope we get a chat again sometime yeah me as well and uh hopefully we run into each other in the field one of these days that would be great that would be yeah. great cool. well, thanks again mike well we'll uh, talk to you again sometime all right. Sounds good. Thanks, Mike. That's it for episode two. I want to thank my guest, Mike Rochford, for coming on the show and sharing his experiences. I really appreciate it, Mike. And of course, now I have many more questions that I wish I had asked Mike. So perhaps we can have him come back sometime. Uh, just a couple things before I go. You can find the show notes for this and all of the upcoming shows at SoMuchPingle.com. And you can join the So Much Pingle Facebook group. You can also email me directly at SoMuchPingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Next week, I'll be releasing Episode 3, the Episode of the Bushmaster. In the meantime, please take care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.